Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma farers, oh, children of the noble ones, and fine, medium sized beings that you are. There's a, uh, a reflection, a chant that's done uh, daily, often in the morning times in some of the, uh, the monasteries and the nunneries in this tradition. And part of that chant is a reflection on the qualities of the Sangha. And one of the qualities of the Sangha in Pali is said to be Anjali Karaniyo. And this means worthy of respect. And uh, so I sit before you here with this quality in my heart and uh, bow to the Sangha here from respect and uh, from a place of gratitude for your practice, sincere in both cases. So I'll begin this evening uh, with a story, painting a picture with these words and some of the images that they may evoke. It's a sort of a combination of a portrait and a landscape in a way. And this is a story that uh, in part, in a way it began not so long ago and in a place not so far from here. Although like any story, if you were to trace back to the very roots of it, that would be very far back indeed. But this part of it at least began in a place near here and not so long ago. And there was a disciple living near here, a disciple of the Buddha. And this, this uh, student, disciple of the Buddha was a renunciate, was an alms mendicant. And he dressed in the saffron robes and lived the very simple life of uh, his order and practiced by those who followed this tradition and have since the time of the Buddha, living a very simple life with a set of robes and a bowl. And it so happened that this, uh, this renunciate, this bhikkhu, had, uh, had come to take on lots of duties, many duties that were associated with a role he had, uh, that had come to him of being the um, abbot and the steward of the community. He lived in a community of others. And, uh, and he gladly did all that was asked of him in this role. He was very diligent and, and dedicated to his duties and, and did it with a glad heart and with a spirit of kindness and generosity and service. But there were a lot of responsibilities and sometimes he felt tired and the years of doing this stretched on one after another. But there came a time when this bhikkhu, this monk, I'll call him, this alms mendicant, he was able to arrange to have a full year's leave of absence from these duties. And he determined that he would make as good use as possible of this time because it was rare that this would be possible. And he, he made a, a kind of a re- resolution, a kind of aditana, a resolve in his heart and his mind that if the conditions were to come together, he would undertake 
a journey and travel to India and visit the holy sites. He would undertake a pilgrimage and visit those holy sites associated with the life of the Blessed One. And this bhikkhu had read these words of the Buddha that came very late in the Buddha's life, speaking to his cousin and attendant Ananda. There are four places, Ananda, that a a pious and faithful person should visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. What are the four? Here the Tathagata was born. Here the Tathagata became fully enlightened in unsurpassed supreme enlightenment. Here the Tathagata set rolling the unexcelled wheel of the Dhamma. And here the Tathagata passed away into the state of Nibbana in which no element of clinging remains. These, Ananda, are the four places that a pious person should visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. And truly, Ananda, there will come to these places bhikkhus and bhikkhunis and different lay persons. And whoever, Ananda, should die while on such a pilgrimage with their hearts established in faith, then at the breaking up of the body after death will be reborn in a realm of heavenly happiness. And so hearing these words and uh, thinking of the life of the Buddha and um, filled with inspiration, he determined he would Uh, try to go on a pilgrimage to these places. And so uh, when the monk's supporters heard of this this resolve, this wish to to go on a pilgrimage, they undertook then to bring about the necessary conditions to help bring this wish to fruition. And so they began to gather resources and, and to make plans for this journey. And in the meantime, the bhikkhu thought about who might be a suitable companion for such a journey. Someone who could accompany him, be a friend, and also uh, help uh, with the duties that he he could not undertake in his renunciate life. To serve as a, a friend and attendant and companion. And into his thoughts there arose the image of a yogi with whom he had been associated in the past. And this yogi was one who had not only traveled already widely in India and was filled with a great love for the place, deep love. But he was endowed with those qualities that the monk deemed suitable and auspicious for undertaking a pilgrimage. A commitment to living carefully and ethically, a kind of resilience and an ability to respond in a cool and balanced way to unpredictable and often wildly changing conditions. This characterizes that place for any one of you who have been there. You know what I'm talking about. And almost perhaps most important of all, a sense of humor. And so the monk sent a note to this yogi and he quoted a verse in that note from the teachings of the Buddha. If for company you cannot find a wise and prudent friend, one who leads a good life, then like a solitary tusker in the elephant forest, 
you should go your way alone. And so in this way, he indicated that he considered this yogi to be that kind of friend. And when the yogi received this note and he heard about this intention for the pilgrimage, his heart was moved and his heart leapt up at the thought of undertaking such a journey and pilgrimage in the company of his friend, of the monk. And he wrote back and he said that he would be both honored and glad to accompany the bhikkhu, both out of friendship and out of duty. And so they began to make plans for the trip and they consulted maps and read the accounts of others who had been before. And they enjoyed this, reading journals and uh, various writings that had been left behind, some of them for centuries and centuries. Now, it's the custom and the rule in the tradition of this bhikkhu that during the period of the annual monsoon rains that take place in the part of uh, the world in India and that uh, part of South Asia where this tradition first arose in this modern form in the historical time of the Buddha, that um, in this tradition during this period, those who... um, had, un, had taken on the life in robes. It was, they had to undertake a resolution to remain in one place for a period of three lunar months, that is 12 weeks. And this, this was known as the, as the Vasa, the rains retreat. And this was a, a rule and tradition that went back to the time of the Buddha. And the ordained Sangha in, that, in this tradition, they count their years in terms of the rains. And when one meets another, they will ask, how many rains do you have? How long have you lived the holy life? And then the one with fewer will pay respects to the elder in this way, no matter the age, chronological age. And this rains period would begin not long after their arrival in India. And so they needed to find a suitable abiding for making the determination for the the rains. And so they started to explore and to seek. And their travels took them far and wide across the country in many different regions, across high mountains, and even behind the great Himalayas to the high country there, across wide valleys and vast plains of rice paddies and fields of different crops. And finally, they came to the location of the once great city of Savati. And this was a favorite resort of the Buddha, and he often spent the period of the rains in Savati. And in a park outside the town, the Jetavana, Jetta's Grove, that had been offered for the, the use of the Buddha and his followers, he would stay there, outside the city walls. And it's it's said that the Buddha gave more discourses while residing in Savati than in any other single place. I think about 25. Maybe it's more. One of my friends may know. They are not telling me. He spent 25 rains there. But way more talks than rains. Because there's a lot of talks. Anyway, he hung out there a lot.
nowadays this the the city of Savati is no longer it's not there and there are few that even recall that name but there are those some scholars some historians pilgrims of course and the followers of the Buddha who still take an interest in these kinds of things but there are signs of that once great city there the ruins of the city walls can still be seen and where the gate through the walls was. And within the walls, there are some simple stone and brick foundations of uh, dwellings. And the Jetta's Grove outside the city wall, the Jetavana, is now a beautiful park. It's a lovely place. And within it, there are the foundations of some of the uh, kutis, the meditation huts of the Buddha and his followers. The one that they said to be the place where the Buddha stayed is um, often there are offerings of flowers and candles and incense there. And people sit there in meditation. But these days, the city is it's only inhabited by a few stray dogs and some monkeys. And I know these things, for I have been there. I once spent the rains in that place. I've seen the monkeys and I've seen the dogs. And I was a pilgrim too. And this is the way of things, that which was once great fades away and at some point is no more. But at the time of the Buddha, Savati was the capital city of the kingdom of Kosala. It was a great kingdom and the king who ruled that ruled in this place was called Pasenadi and he was a great friend and disciple of the Buddhas and great supporter of his. And the town Savati was also the home of the wealthy merchant Anattapindaka. We've mentioned him before. And, and there's a place they say that's where his house was there. It's hard to say for sure. But he was perhaps the most famous lay disciple of the Buddhas. A very wealthy merchant. And he purchased the Jetavana. The story says that um, Prince Jetta, who owned it, asked a very high price. He said, if you can cover the entire park in coins, that's the cost. And it said that he did this, but he, he came to the end and he needed one more. And Jetta said, that's oh, good enough. <laughs> Close enough. So when the, the two pilgrims, this bhikkhu and his attendant and comrade came to Savati, it seemed so suitable a very auspicious place for them to spend the rains, the vasa. And then when they went, entered into the park, their hearts were filled with faith and joy at the beauty there and the stillness of that place. And so they said, we will stay here for the vasa. And they made that determination and they took up habitation at a small pilgrim's way station that was located a reasonable distance away. And it soon became their habit and their custom to rise early in the cool darkness of the pre-dawn hour. And they would make their way to the Jetavana and spend time in meditation there in the shade of the trees, in the beautiful park grounds. Now it so happened that this pilgrim rest house where they slept was home to several small dogs. And these were dogs of questionable heritage and dubious appearance. <laughs> but these dogs were of kind disposition and loyal temperament. 
and soon they were given names by the kind-hearted monk and his companion. There was Biscuit and Cookie, and there were the twins, Krispy Kreme and Caramel Kreme. Now it's interesting to note that these names are those of sweet snack foods. This, no doubt this reflects the dog's fondness for any kind of food and their gratitude for the offerings that sometimes came their way that often took the form of cookies. But I think it also relates to the fact that the monk and his companion themselves were often rather hungry because they were living on very simple limited rations during this time and they grew quite thin. I've seen photographs of them, very thin, thinner than either of them is now. And they also, because they, they like to play with words, they gave the dogs um, Latin names that befitted their dispositions. One of them was Canis Obstructus Biscuitansis, and there was Canis Excellensis Cookieye. And so it came to pass that most mornings in the uh, very early pre-dawn twilight, when it was still almost completely dark, they would f- be walking accompanied by a loyal entourage of dogs and made their way in the semi-darkness to the Jetavana across the lanes along the small paths that ran between the rice paddies. And the feeling there was... Uh, much as it must have been now for centuries. The simple life that is led in rural India. And they finally arrived close to the, uh, the park entrance and they had to run a gauntlet of, of ill-mannered monkeys who lurked in the trees and along the wall and would sometimes uh, come down to see if they could steal some, something, anything. And often as they walked along in this kind of companionable silence, you could say, they were quiet in the mornings. They were accompanied by the sounds of chanting that would drift in across from the village from one of the temples or the viharas that clustered around the area. And almost every morning, the chant that they would hear were the words of the Blessed One, of the Buddha, the chants of the Satipatthana Sutta. This discourse on the establishments of mindfulness, which is not only one of the most revered teachings of the Buddha, but is one you've heard us refer to many, many times because it forms the basis of our meditation practices. And at that time in that place, as these words came drifting over these fields on their way to the Jetavana, it felt timeless and it felt to them as if the Buddha perhaps were giving that discourse. He didn't give it there. He gave it in a town of the Kuru people in Kamasadamma. But it was as though the Buddha or one of his, perhaps Ananda was repeating it to himself because he memorized all of them. And it felt so timeless there. 
So I want to play a recording, a portion of that beautiful beloved discourse. And this tradition that we are part of, it's, it was initially, and in many ways it continues to be an oral tradition. And these teachings were memorized through uh, chanting them over and over. And we have, uh, we have these teachings now because of those who memorized these things and have done so over the centuries and kept them alive because they would have, they weren't written down right away. It was three or four hundred years after the Buddha before anything was written down. So I want to play a bit of chanting in the Pali. And uh, this, the, the monk who's chanting is a venerable Omal, Om, excuse me, Omalpe Sobita Mahathera, Sri Lankan monk. And just let this uh, wash over, wash through you and receive it uh, kind of like a direct transmission in the way that the monk and his attendant, it would wash over and through them as they walked along. And it felt as though they were getting bathed in Dhamma. So let this wash over you in that way. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Samma sambuddhassa Evang me sutang Ekang samayang bhagava Kuru suviherati Kamasadamang nam Kuru nang nigamu Tatrako bhagava bhikkhu amante si bhikkhavoti badante ti te bhikkhu bhagavato pachasosum bhagava etadavocha Ekayano ayang bhikkave maggo sattanang visuddhya soka paridvanang samatikkamaya dukkhadomanasanang athagamaya nyayasa adhigamaya Nibbanas sachikiriyaya yadidam Chattaro satipatthana
katame chattaru ida bhikkave bhikku kaaye kayaanupassi viharati atapi sampajano satima vinaya loke abhijjado manasam Vedanasu Vedananupassi Viharati Atapi Sampajanu Satima Vinayaloke Abhijjadomanasam Chitte Chittanupassi Viharati Atapi Sampajanu Satima Vinayaloke Abhijjado Manasang Dhamme Sudhammanu Passi Viharati Atapi Sampajanu Satima Vinayaloke Abhijjado manasam Katanca bhikkave bhikkhu Kaye kaya nupasi viharati Idha bhikkave bhikkhu Aranyagato va rukkamulagato va Sunyagar gato va nisidati palankang abhujitva Ujungkayang panidhaya parimukhang Sating upadhapetva So satova asa sati Sato pasa sati digang wa asa santo digang asa samiti pajanati digang wa pasa santo digang pasa samiti pajanati rasang wa asa santo Rasang asa samiti pajanati Rasang wa pasa santo Rasang pasa samiti pajanati After the <clears throat> words of the homage, the namotasa, the first words of the 
spoken of the discourse were ewang me suttong, thus have I heard. This was heard by into an ear and then it came out and was heard into another ear and spoken and heard and spoken and heard, rippling down like that over the centuries. There's a part of this teaching and of this chant, this beautiful instruction that we have the benefit of, that it follows each section of specific instructions on the practice of mindfulness of the the satipatthanas. It's, some have called it the refrain and it's repeated, I think it's 13 times in the, in the discourse. Something the Buddha uh, felt uh, was important. And, and this uh, sort of points to a way of practicing. Say, so he tells us what to do, what to pay attention to, and then kind of how to do that. And the last line in that refrain I'll read the whole thing. In this way, in regard to the body, in regard to feelings, the mind and dhammas, one abides contemplating them internally or externally, or both internally and externally. And one abides contemplating them in terms of the nature of arising and in terms of the nature of passing away or the nature of both arising and passing away or mindfulness that there is a body, that there are feelings, that there is a mind, that there are dhammas, is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. A few nights ago, Carol gave a talk, and, and in a way, it's, it's a continuation of the same talk that we've all been giving this whole month, but very direct, focusing on the subject and the pointing to this possibility of liberation through non-clinging, using those words very directly, liberation through non-clinging. And she spoke about the way that this understanding resides at the very core, at the heart of everything the Buddha taught. And everything he said and everything anyone, anything any one of us might say is in service of this understanding. Liberation through non-clinging. And in the Satipatthana refrain, the way that ended, we find this same sense of, of freedom, of liberation, but here this sense of non-clinging is, is related to, is, is characterized by, or is pointed at through this um, expression of an independent abiding. One abides independent, not clinging to anything. I think it's important to get some sense of what the Buddha might have been pointing to in using, choosing these words. This independence is, is not a kind of um, 
withdrawal or disconnection from life or from the world, a way of living that is separate or divorced from life. It's not that kind of an independence. I think rather this sense of one abides independent points to the possibility of a life where our well-being is not, or at least to a great extent, if not completely, independent of the changing conditions that we encounter in our life. So it's an independence where one is living fully and joyfully, but not asking the world of changing conditions to provide that which it is incapable of ever providing, a source of lasting contentment or peace. It's not a judgment, it's just is seeing this is not something to ask of this world of changing conditions. We will not find it there. For a long time, I used to hear that statement, the way that refrain ended. It seemed like a, a beautiful ending. And I thought, oh, this is the, the description of the enlightened mind, the enlightened heart. The one who has realized what the Buddha taught completely, the fully awakened being, then abides in this kind of independence. I saw it as that. Practice this way, and then this is the, you know, the result, the, the place where one then arrives in a certain way. A description of the end of the path. And something that one might aspire to, might find inspiring to think in these ways, bring these words to the mind. And there is a certain truth perhaps to that. But I think we can always also uh, hold this in a different way and see it as a, an instruction and something to practice here and now in the moment. To abide in this independent way. Again, not clinging to anything. I think if we approach it in, in a wise way, we could look at our practice and the meditation process as a, as a process of training. Someone called it training. We're training the mind, the heart, and encouraging this quality, training this uh, ability, this quality that we all have, this natural ability to be uh, mindful simple capacity. We all have to be aware. Right now, is there awareness? Everyone in this room can say yes to that question. If we ask it. So we train this and over time we start to trust this capacity to be aware, this awareness more than the, the, what you could think of as the passing show of changing phenomena. We start to um, see the truth of the way things are in, in a way below the surface appearances. We train the, the ability to look below the surface at the more ultimate aspects of reality, you could say. Everything is, has its own characteristics. And then it has these universal characteristics. So we, we talk about this, it's all we've been talking about all month. This uh, looking at the essence of things. And one way this begins for most of us is, is through um, 
really connecting to and deeply uh, sensing into the impermanent nature of things. A direct touching where we see for ourselves that which is of the nature to arise is also of the nature to pass away and to cease. See this over and over. And the Buddha placed great importance on this understanding. And in a way, the whole path and his whole teaching flows in, in a, we can see it as flowing from um, an ever deepening relationship to this truth. And the Buddha frequently spoke about the power of this understanding. In one place, he said this, fruitful as is the act of giving, yet it is still more fruitful to go with a confident heart for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to undertake the five precepts of virtue. And fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain loving kindness in one's being for only as long as the time it takes to milk a cow. And fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain the perception of impermanence for only as long as the snapping of a finger. And in in this tradition, in the suttas, the classic description of a moment of awakening is usually described in terms of the perception of impermanence. The stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus, that which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. A deep insight into this truth at that moment where the mind releases into the unconditioned. You know, when we hear these words so much, all things are impermanent. I get it already. Or it it becomes a kind of philosophical stance that we adopt or or just a thing to say when you hang around retreat centers. (laughs) But in our practice, we start to touch into this truth in a really different way. We touch the reality of this in a profound way. And this experience and understanding of this shows up in different ways. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes more subtle, sometimes more gross. The change of the seasons, the change over the course of a day, over the course of the year, the changes in our body as it, uh, as it ages. This movement of anything that takes birth towards aging and eventually death. And we see that, it's, and it's, it's obvious. And, and then we see it because we spend so much time with this intimacy with our own mind and body, this radical intimacy there. And we see the changing sensations of what we call body, the elements. It's just this dance arising, passing, arising and passing. One sensation and the next, hardness, softness, heat and coolness, tension and pressure, vibration. You feel it now. We see there's nothing permanent there, nothing in any of it. In meditation, we see body, the direct experience of that is just this shifting flow. And sometimes the concept and sense of the form of the body disappears entirely. And it's just this flow of change. And it almost is like a mist of particles, 
fine vibration there. Or we see the, the pulsing, insubstantial, fleeting nature of thoughts, just mental energy rising, passing. We see whole worlds created and falling away. We take birth in our universe and disappears. We're lost in these, these dramas and stories and then they're gone. We were lost, it was our world and where did it go? So we see body and mind are in this state of constant flux and change. And we see it over and over. Is there anyone here who hasn't seen this? We might convince ourselves we haven't, but that's not true. We see it. It's not, not some fancy thing. It's just the nature. But we get so caught up in the process and then details of it all, the context of the senses, all that we think and feel about it and all that it means about me. And we fall into this fascination with it and, and we lose sight of this changing nature. And we attribute a solidity and a reality that in certain way it just doesn't have. Once I was at the uh, beach with a friend, one of the people who will be coming to teach uh, in March. And we were, um, it was a very, been a very windy, stormy period and the wind was still very strong and the waves were very large. This is the beach, um, ocean beach in San Francisco. And, and there were these, it had piled up sea foam, big piles of it. And there were huge chunks of it, as big as this, bigger than the bell, as big as a, a chair. And they would break loose and the wind was blowing parallel to the, the shore and these huge chunks would come zooming down towards us and then they would just be gone, nothing there. They looked like little icebergs zooming along the size of a couch and then just nothing left, just go away. It's fantastic. They seem so solid. And then with our experience and especially the whole world of our, our mental fabrications, you know, it seems there's so much going on and there's so many issues there. I said something about this the other day. So much we like and don't like and all this wanting and not wanting and there's got to be something that we must have to do about it. I think Adrian uh, read a quotation from uh, this beautiful book called Pure and Simple uh, by Upasaka Ki Nanayan. Another uh, quotation from that book. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any real essence. Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They just keep on flowing and they seem to involve involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's really only arising, remaining and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's really only just this, arising, remaining and passing away like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. So 
we get so caught up in it that we don't notice that it's, in, in one way of looking, it's just this flow of change, nothing lasting. We're so caught up and fascinated that we then find that we are relating to it with this latching on, this identification that Apasaka Ki, she spoke of it as, as latching on to it. And this leads to the feeling that there's a lot at stake here. And there's a lot we gotta fix. So much we have to fix, endless. But we might take a half step back in moments, just relax into the flow. It's like a soft gaze. We soften our gaze. And we might find in moments that we can just look softly, simply at the present moment as it arises right before us and passes away and just let it be. And we may touch into this possibility of an independent abiding in that way a little bit more from Upasaka Ki. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away, and the future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present, arising and passing away right before your eyes, and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go. That's when you gain release. Another way we might touch this sense of an independent abiding is by resting our attention within the the quality of awareness itself, you could say. We, We kind of let mindfulness take awareness as its object, the aware mind. I was practicing on a retreat with Sayada Utejaniya once, and he would sit up in front like we are and, and just sit with us, and then every once in a while something would come out. He'd speak. And one morning he said, I don't know if this is an exact close, something like this, awareness is your true home. You should stay home where you belong. (laughs) And and in my experience, I made it for myself, it was this sense of of staying home and, and it was the sense, oh, I just don't have to reach out and pick anything up. I just let it do its thing. It's gonna do it anyway. I don't have to pick any up, any of it up. I don't have to latch onto it. I'll just stay here. It's like, ah, I'll stay here instead. Sometimes we can just stay home where we belong and, and there are moments when we'll see we aren't, we don't have to grab hold of anything. There's nothing we have to cling to. We abide within the quality of the aware mind itself. It's that feeling, that sense of that. And we'll just see it's just a flow, experiences this flow of contacts and knowing, contact and knowing, contact and knowing. And there's no need to latch onto any of it and we can't anyway because it's just gone before we have a chance. And there's this sense, ah, I'll stay home and abide here independently. Rest into that. And we start to see that we can trust the awareness. It can hold anything. 
It's just natural processes and the awareness can meet that. It's just the nature and we settle back and we let it do its thing and we don't have to grab a hold of it and claim any of it as I, as me, as mine. There's another practice that I sometimes guide us in a little bit as part of the Brahma Viharas when I guide those. And this is a practice um, of just doing nothing. A radical shift away from doing to simply being. That's probably one of the most mm, difficult things to do. But it's powerful to practice a radical not doing. So often our sincere, such sincere effort can lead in the direction of trying to make something happen. To an unskillful focus on the experience as though that's what is important, is what's happening. And we try to get something out of it or try to get somewhere other than where we are or to get an insight to come. Oh, get that insight. Pull that baby out of this <laughs> somehow. There's got to be a way to grab it and yank it out of there. It's in there somewhere. I just know it. But sometimes we can just let go of doing. Let anything that feels like a practice go. If we do it skillfully and allow ourselves to simply be and drop any agenda, It's just for a moment right now, sitting here, just stop doing, don't do anything. Just be for a minute. And look at the difference between that and what you call meditation. Does anything stop? Sometimes there's mindfulness, there's contacts. Life doesn't stop because we stop meditating. Mindfulness is there or it's not, but that would happen anyway. So these kinds of, of practices, these three kind of three possibilities I pointed to, there could be many more. They, I think they increase a confidence in the ability to rest in the moment as it is and allowing it to, um, allowing nature to do its thing. We, it's this giving back to nature. I use this image a lot. We, we give it back. It's not ours to take. That which is not yours, give it back. We allow things to arise and to cease and this realization of this process of the cessation of things increases this trust we have in, in non-attachment and practicing non-identification and letting go of not clinging to anything in the world. And we're fully alive and present in that. It points towards um, this truly independent abiding that is fully connected and a mind and heart that are not agitated. They're not fighting against, not struggling with reality. 
but in a kind of beautiful harmony and alignment with the truth of things, with nature. And as we, we you know, open to embrace this non-struggle, non-agitation, as this grows, then the, the quality of equanimity, and I know Dara spoke about it this last night, starts to strengthen and, the, and becomes this enlightenment factor. And at times there's this profound balance of mind Sometimes it's called high equanimity or six-limbed equanimity because it arises at every sense door. Straight. Sometimes it's so profound and so simple. And it's said to be like the mind of an arahant, a fully enlightened being. It's a sense of unassailableness, unshakable in the face of anything. It's not separate or divorced from life. It's, it's a kind of stillness or silence. And it has those qualities, a stillness that is there all the time. It's, it's right beneath the dance of life and all the vibrancy and the movement there. It's an intimacy, a deep intimacy with all things, but it doesn't demand clinging or identification. It's like the the ocean underneath the waves. It's always still. It's always there, it's always available. We can touch that in moments because it never goes away. It doesn't matter what's going on. So we'll end tonight with uh, part of a poem. This is by T.S. Eliot, it's uh, from Bernd Norton. It's one of the four quartets. This is just an excerpt from that. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance and there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a light still and moving. Let's have just a moment of silence together and touch the stillness there.
thank you for listening this evening. And uh, we have half an hour for some walking in the cool evening. I think there may be stars. I didn't look. Anyone, are there stars tonight? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.